Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand to his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This is God's word. Thank you very much, Cassie. Um, I'm warm, really warm. So I'm going to cool off a little bit and then warm up again. Um, Easter. Easter is the best part of Christianity because Easter is all about the resurrection. And you know what? If, if you think about it, what your heart desperately wants more than anything else is the very thing that Easter is all about. What your heart wants more than anything else is resurrection. Because resurrection means a fresh start. Why are you scared? Why are you so anxious? and worried about an unknown future? Isn't it because uh, you're afraid that things are going to go south, they're going to go poorly, they're going to go wrong, and then you'll have regrets? 
Isn't that why we feel guilt because of our regrets? Is that why we carry around anger in, heart, in our hearts because of regrets? Because things have been done to us perhaps that we wish hadn't been done to us or we have done things that we wish we had not done, but we can't take them back. They're done. They're out there. It's happened. And so what our hearts long for is a second chance, you know, to be able to wipe the slate clean, be able to start over and to try again, we, we, we say, if only, you know, if, if only I hadn't bought that stupid thing, then I could use my money for something worthwhile. <laughs> or if only I could take back those words that flew out of my mouth before I could catch them, and they deeply, deeply hurt someone, and it screwed up a relationship royally, and I don't know if it'll ever get fixed. Sinatra, hey, Frank Sinatra, old blue eyes, regrets, I've had a few. Everybody's had a few. Everybody's had a few. Everybody can look back and say, I wish I could change things. I want a fresh start. And the message of Easter is, Jesus comes to us and says, you want that? I can give that to you. Now, let me just say, if you're here this morning and you are a skeptic about Christianity... You wonder if it's all true, you haven't bought in, you're, you're not sure, that kind of thing. You're, you're skeptical. Let me just say this. This is why you should be skeptical. I talk with a lot of people who aren't Christians and they say, well, I have problems with, uh, you know, the ethics of Christianity or I have problems with the idea that uh, one religion is right and the other religions are wrong. I have problems. They have all these intellectual problems with Christianity. But you know what? If you're going to have a problem with Christianity, it's not, don't let the restrictiveness or the exclusivity be the issue. Let this be the issue, this promise that the resurrection offers you that you can have a completely fresh start because you know what? It sounds too good to be true. Christianity as a religion, if you investigate it, you know what the big problem with it is? It just sounds too good to be true. And I encourage you, if you're going to reject it, reject it for that. Remember, if you were here on Friday, Good Friday, we talked about Jesus as a king that he was a king who gave himself up for his people. He was a servant king, which made him different than every other king. But today, we get to talk about how Jesus is the king who is victorious as well. He was victorious in his death. He fulfilled his mission, which was to free us from the, from the power of death, which was to pay the penalty for our sin in order to free us from God's judgment on our sin, to free us from guilt, to free us from fear, to free us from uh, condemnation. And this morning, he comes to us this morning as the victorious king who does what? He brings us gifts. Because, you know, in the ancient world, whenever a king went off to war, when he would come back from war into his home city, he would have gifts with him. He would have the spoils of war. And this morning, Jesus, the resurrected king, says, let me offer you my gifts, my people. Let me offer you the spoils of war. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Remember, skeptic, what I'm trying to do is it's almost... I don't know, is it reverse psychology? Maybe. Christianity sounds so too good to be true that it's got to be true. 
Here's my argument. No human being would make this up. The gospel has got to be true because no human being would make this up. No human being would say, I want to start a religion and I want to get a whole bunch of people to believe me and here's what I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell people that based upon the work of someone else, not their own work, but the work of someone else on their behalf, they can be reconciled to God, they can have their past wiped away and they can be embraced by the creator of the universe and never have to fear living apart from him again. That's what I'm going to tell them. It sounds too good to be true. Well, let's look at what Jesus gives us this morning. From this text, we learn that Jesus offers a number of gifts. You can, you can see them listed on the back of the bulletin. There's a little outline. There's five gifts that Jesus gives us as the spoils of his war against sin and death and hell. And the first one is the big one, and we're going to spend most of our time on that, and the rest are the result of the first gift. So you can't get the other gifts without the first gift. That's why we got to spend most of our time on the first gift. Let's go to work. Number one, the first gift that Jesus offers us is the gift of faith. Scripture teaches that faith is a gift. Faith is not something that you can work yourself up into having. You can't like flex your muscles really hard and go and produce faith. It's a gift. It's given to you. Here's Mary, and she comes to the tomb, and it says in verse 10 of chapter 20, it says, then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. In other words, she comes to an empty tomb. What she expected to see was not there. Okay, and that's why she's crying. And she's crying because Mary thinks it's over. Mary thinks the dream has died. Mary thinks the light has gone out. She thinks that there's no hope. She thinks that, 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 that everything that she had put her hope in is now lost. And that's why she even asks the gardener in verse 15. She says, sorry, I got the verse wrong. Um... She asks in verse 13, no, where is she? Oh, yeah, sorry, verse 13, I was right, verse 15, thinking he was the guy, she's talking to Jesus, and you know, I got confused, anyhow, she's talking to Jesus, she thinks Jesus is the gardener, and she says to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. And so she asks the gardener for the body, because she thinks the dream is dead. Now, what's the problem with this? Here's the problem with this. Mary has been with Jesus throughout his entire ministry, okay? She was there basically from the beginning, and she has seen him teach with power. She has seen him do incredible things. She's seen him heal the sick. She's seen him raise the dead. And she's been there when he was teaching his disciples about what he came to do and what was going to happen to him. She was there, when Jesus told his disciples, look, I'm going to have to be handed over to the, the religious leaders, I'm going to be put on trial, I'm going to be killed unjustly, but I am also going to rise from the dead, okay? She should have known when she went to that empty tomb, she should have known that it would be empty. She should have said, oh man. He did it. I, I admit I had my doubts. 
understandably so. But he's gone. My bad. (laughs) But she didn't. Even with all this teaching, with all this preparation, you see, she didn't believe because faith is a gift. It's something that you cannot conjure up. It's something that is offered to you. Listen, I, I talk to people who say, I wish I could believe. But, you know, I'm just not that type of person. Nonsense. Nonsense. Faith is a gift that must be received. And it's not dependent upon what kind of person you are. What is fascinating about the gospel is, is that it is attractive to all kinds of different people. Rich people, poor people, well-educated people, uneducated people, people from different cultures and throughout history from different parts of the world. Why? Because it's a gift that is received by, that, or because it is a, because the gospel is something that you believe by faith. Not based upon what kind of person you are. And if you say, well, okay, I guess I just got to sit here and go, well, I guess I don't believe it, so I guess I don't have the gift. Tough one for me. Nothing I can do about it. You're wrong. You're wrong because our text shows us that there are some things you can do. If you want to receive this gift of faith, there are definitely a couple of things you can do. And the first one that we see in our text is this. You need to drop your conditions. You need to drop your conditions. Look at verse 24, if you would like. Thomas, oh, Thomas, 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 called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But, it says, he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands in his side, I will not believe. Aha! Thomas says, I will believe if, if, I need to see it with my own eyes. He had conditions, and Jesus actually comes to him and says, you need to drop your conditions, Thomas. In verse 27, it says, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your fingers here, put your hand, put, see, sorry, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And you think that Jesus has actually said, I'll fulfill your conditions, Thomas. But notice what it says in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas didn't do it. He didn't put his finger in the, in the, in the hands. He didn't put his finger in his side. He just saw and he said, my Lord and my God. Look, a lot of people come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, I I like what you have to say about helping the poor. But all that stuff you have to say about how I'm supposed to use my sexuality, I don't really like that part. Or people come to Jesus and they say, I love what you say about forgiveness and turning the other cheek and nonviolence and all that kind of stuff. But your exclusive claims to being the only way to God the Father, I can't buy that. I'm sorry. See, there's conditions. Or sometimes people come to Jesus and they say, I will follow you if X happens. If you get me out of this jam, if you help me overcome this problem, if you whatever. Or, I will follow you if Y doesn't happen to me. 
You see, it makes no sense to come to Jesus unless you drop your conditions because otherwise you're still in control. Imagine, imagine if a toddler said to their, to their mother, okay, mom, I'm fine to be in this parent-child relationship with you, but let me just lay down the, the ground rules. This is how it's going to work. That doesn't make sense, does it? Why does that make sense with God? Why does it make sense for us to treat God the way we would never let a toddler treat an adult? Why do we think that we can come to Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is the creator of all things, and say to him, I will enter a relationship with you if you do X, Y, or Z. It doesn't make any sense, and yet we do it all the time. We treat him almost like a consultant. You know, consultant, you pay him a few bucks, you go visit him for half an hour, you let him tell you what he thinks you should do, and then you say, I'll take it under advisement. The first thing we need to do is we need to drop our conditions. Well, how do you drop your conditions? I mean, let's face it, the issue is control. I, I want to be in control of my life. I don't want to give my life over to anybody else and allow them to direct my paths. I want to be autonomous. I think, frankly, that I know what's good for me better than anybody else does. And you all feel that way too. It's natural. How in the world are we going to give up this control, give up this autonomy, especially when we live in a world that says, that's the last thing anybody should ever do. Your individual autonomy is the most important thing. Well, it's the other thing that we see happens to Thomas. You have to see his wounds. It's the only way. Thomas may not have stuck his finger in the holes, but he sure took a good look at them. See, you need to look at Jesus as he is and see what he did for you. you too many people come to Jesus like a topic, like, a, like an issue, like an intellectual kind of interesting conundrum that they're trying to figure out. But Jesus is a person who claims to have actually bore the brunt of your punishment so that you don't have to experience it. He wants to know you in love. He wants to have a relationship with you. Faith is like a windshield, okay? When you're driving along, you don't look at the windshield, you look through the windshield. The windshield enables you to see where you're going. And through the eyes of faith, you're supposed to look at who Jesus is and what he's done for you. In other words, you read scripture, you read the story, you hear the testimony about what he has done, and you say to him, Jesus, help me believe that you did this for me. It's the only way it's going to work. I mean, some of you uh, maybe have been on a retreat for school or for work, right? And you go to oh, these team-building exercises. We all roll our eyes at them, but we do them, right? And what's one of the big team-building exercises? The trust fall, right? The trust fall. You're supposed to, like, put your trust in someone else, and so you, you know, fold your hands or whatever, and they stand behind you, and then you fall back. And, and not until you lose the center of gravity... Are you actually trusting that other person, right? Like you can feel the moment. You can feel the moment where you say, oh, point of no return, now I have to trust them. 
Well, in a spiritual sense, that's what you have to do with Jesus. You have to look at his wounds. You have to see what he claims to have done for you, and you have to come to that point of no return where you say, it's got to be you. I don't understand everything. You don't have to get everything. You don't have to understand everything. You don't have to be able to articulate the Trinity or be able to explain the doctrine of election or be able to outline for us the the Roman road of, of being called and then being justified and then being sanctified and then being glorified. You don't even have to know what all those terms mean. All you have to be able to do is say, I trust that he took every single one of my sins on his shoulders when he went to that cross. And the way you do that is by looking at the wounds. Okay, that's point number one, only 18 to go. The first gift is the gift of faith. Second gift, he gives us more gifts. What's the second gift? The second gift is the gift of intimacy. Through faith, you get to experience the gift of intimacy. Listen to verse 17. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. Now, initially, it does not sound like Jesus is offering Mary intimacy, right? Because she sees him and says, oh, Rabboni, oh, yeah. And she, like, want, grabs him. She wants a big, fat hug, right? That's intimacy. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. Because he's pointing out to her that, that the intimacy that she really longs for is not physical, It's not a hug. He says, I have to leave. But understand something. In my leaving, I am going to be sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to offer you an intimacy with me that you can't have right now. Yes, right now we can touch and we can high five and we can talk and that's all good. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he is going to actually take up residence in you. And you're going to know me with a depth that you could not know me even in this way. You'll be able to have me anytime, anywhere. You won't have to get in line. Think of how many people wanted to have intimacy with Jesus even before his crucifixion. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to have him deal with their problems. They wanted to ask him business advice. They wanted to have him heal somebody, whatever. They're lining up, queuing up. You don't have to do that. Anytime, anywhere, you can speak to him. Have you experienced that? Have you felt that contact? Have you felt his presence? I hate to tell you this, but for many of you, you're going to have to suffer to really feel it, to really experience it. Sorry, just telling you the truth. But I tell you, once you have experienced it in the middle of 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 your suffering, you, you, there is an inexpressible comfort that comes from knowing that he means that Jesus suffered too. He knows your suffering. He's experienced your suffering. He is not alien to your suffering, and he weeps over your suffering, but it's Easter, and the empty tomb means that he's also conquered your suffering, and you can know that in the midst of it through hope, through his presence. Okay, next one. I told you these ones were shorter. Purpose. The next one is purpose. Here's a gift that you, you get from the risen king. You get purpose. Listen to verse 21. Jesus said, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Let me ask you this question. Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you bother? 
You got to pay the bills. Okay, fine. You got to pay the bills. But why do you got to pay the bills? Because you have a family to support. Fine, you've got a family to support. Why do you have a family to support? Well, because I fell in love. Why'd you fall in love? I mean, I can go back. You get my point. I can go all the way back. In the morning because they want to make a lot of money. Some people get up in the morning because they want to love their family. Some people get up in the morning because they want to enjoy life, whatever that means. Some people get up in the morning because they want to build respect. Jesus here says, here's why you get up in the morning. You get up in the morning to be my witnesses, to be sent. So that at school or at work or at home or wherever you are, you are a witness, you are a testimony, you testify to the fact that I have risen from the dead. And this is great news, okay? Like you might think, well, is that really that great a purpose? It is a great purpose because you see, if you get up in the morning, if the reason you get up in the morning is to make a lot of money, what happens? Every single day, you are under pressure to produce. Make that money, make that money, make that money. If you get up in the morning to be loved by your family, what do you got to do? You got to make sure they love you. You got to do whatever it takes to make sure they love you. Mom, I want pancakes for breakfast. No, I want eggs for breakfast. No, I want cereal for breakfast. You're making three breakfasts. If you're getting up in the morning because you want respect, you have got to put on some kind of front that, that you believe communicates, commands the respect that you want. Each and every day is a grind. But what if you've God, everything you could ever imagine, all the riches that you could ever desire, whether it be respect or whether it be money, whatever, all those things are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And all you have to do every day is get up and testify to what he has done for you. You never, ever, ever have to feel that pressure again. Of course you still have to go to work. Don't like quit your job and say, no, I just live for Jesus. But you don't have to work for the work under the work. You can just go to work. You can just serve your family. You can just be part of a society that, that respects you or doesn't. You could take it or leave it. You do it in the best of the, everyone's interest, but you don't do it to get anything from them because all that you've wanted, all that you've needed, you've got from Jesus. You're no longer on the hook. Well, that would be nice, eh? Wouldn't it be awesome to be that free? Well... There's one more gift that makes sure you can experience that, and that is the gift of power. Verse 22, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. You get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus has risen, you get the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I, I've talked about this before. The gift of the Holy Spirit is not being tapped into the force. It's not being plugged into some just sort of energy source, okay? Having the gift of the Holy Spirit is having inside you. Not in, a, not in a physical way that like you can crack you open and you know, look in your heart and go, oh, there's the Holy Spirit. No, but in, your, in your, the root of your nature, of who you are, he takes up residence, okay? And what is remarkable about this is it means that his power, that means that the power of God himself is in you to enable you to experience all those other gifts. Problem is, is that that means that he's in charge, because that power is at work in you, not, not just for you. And what I mean by that is this. He is going to renovate you. 
okay? When you get it, when you take up a new residence, what's the first thing you do? You renovate that place, right? You start smashing and knocking down walls and doing demolition and all that kind of stuff. And, and sometimes that new place has got to start looking a lot worse before it starts looking much better. And the Holy Spirit is going to do the very same thing to your sinful heart. He is going to start tearing it up. He's going to renovate you. And it could hurt. It could be very, very painful because what's going to happen is, is you're going to start discovering just how bad you really are. Just like when you walk into that living room and you say, well, let's knock out that wall. And you tear off the drywall and you go, oh, there's mold. Yeah. <laughs> that sucks, right? It's way worse than I thought it was. You may discover, you will discover that it is way worse than you ever thought it was. And you have to keep digging. And the Holy Spirit is going to do that in you. But that's, it's okay. You're in the demo phase. He's in the demo phase. But he's going to rebuild you into something beautiful. All those things that are plaguing you, you can trust he will overcome. Your anxiety, your fear, your selfishness, your short temper, your impatience. One more. Peace. Every time the risen Christ appears, what does he do? He says, peace be with you, right? He appears several times here uh, to his disciples. You can read it in verse 19. You can read it in verse uh, 21. You can read it in verse 26. Jesus keeps saying, peace be with you. He offers this peace. There is a peace because Jesus is risen. What's so peaceful about knowing the risen Christ. Well, that's a sermon in and of itself, but let me just say this. For today, it means he's beaten death. Remember before, at the very beginning, I said, you know, Jesus, no, I, at the very beginning of the sermon, I said, people long for a new start, right? A fresh start. Oftentimes, we're trying to deal with our regrets in weird ways, midlife crises. They're very often ways of trying to deal with, with, with regrets. We want a fresh start that overcomes these things because why? We realize that we're going to die someday. People fear death and they don't want their lives, or they do want their lives to count in the face of that. People are terrified of death. Why do you think people don't want to talk about death? Why do you think in our culture, did you know, I just learned this recently, houses used to have parlors, right? And nobody like knows what a parlor's for anymore. I didn't, anyway. Parlors were the room that was meant for the dead. So when somebody died in your home, from your family, they were laid out in the parlor and that's where the wake was held, and that's where visitation was held, and all that kind of stuff. Now we have funeral homes to take care of this, and we've gotten rid of parlors in our homes because it's another example of how we are trying to avoid the issue of death. I just read a, a long and fascinating article in the Atlantic or in the, in the New York Times, I can't remember which one it was, about how in Silicon Valley, the smartest and richest CEOs of Google, Amazon, Cisco, have put together this group of them who, who, who are like a task force figuring out ways to fund research to end aging, 
They want to end aging. They want to find the gene that turns death on and off, or they want to find all the genes that, that cause us to deteriorate and go toward death. They are bound and determined. The richest people in the world, frankly, are bound and determined to conquer death. And they're really desperate to have it happen in their lifetime. But according to this ridiculous, outrageous gospel message that Jesus didn't die, but he was resurrected as well, a Christian looks in the face of death and says, the worst thing that could happen to me has become the best thing. I'm not saying you should have a death wish, but a Christian can look into the face of death into the maw of the grave and can dare to say, have the audacity to say that that is no longer the end but the beginning. It's the doorway to light and life. Now, I took a quote from the Lord of the Rings again. I'm on a real Lord of the Rings kick lately, I know. It's on the front of your bulletin and it's from the end of The Return of the King where Sam meets Gandalf. And Sam says to Gandalf, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And the gospel message is, the message of the resurrection is yes. Everything sad is going to come untrue. We're going to sing it in a couple of minutes. We're going to sing... Uh, Christ the Lord is risen today, and, and the beautiful, that beautiful hymn at one point, it says this, following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise, ours the cross, the grave, the skies. I started speaking to skeptics, saying, if you're going to reject Christianity, please reject it because it's too good to be true. Here's why it's too good to be true. Who else offers that? Who else offers you a second chance, not just in this life, but a second chance that, that carries on into the next life for eternity? Even Dennis Hopper. Do you know who Dennis Hopper is? Easy Rider. You ever watched that movie? You probably shouldn't have. Uh, what else is he in? Speed. That's pretty old, too. Uh, he was the bad guy in the first season of 24. Am I getting any closer? I mean, he, nobody talks about Dennis Hopper anymore. Dennis Hopper, you know who I'm talking about? Okay, good. Dennis Hopper, he understood this to the point where he could say, and it's on, your, on the front of your bulletin again, in a world where the dead have returned to life, the word trouble loses much of its meaning. So you look around the world and you see all kinds of trouble, but it doesn't it can't bury you. It loses much of its meaning because ultimately it has been destroyed. It has been overcome. And so, skeptic, I invite you to explore the resurrection. Research it. Find out whether it's true or not because you know what? There's actually an awful lot of evidence for it. More substantial maybe than you think. So substantial that a guy like N.T. Wright who is a world-renowned scholar, lives in Britain, he's a bishop in the Church of England, wrote in an amazing book called The Resurrection of the Son of God, he wrote this, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen, risen Jesus. 
Nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience would have invented it, no matter how guilty or how guilty or forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. Explore. Meet the risen king, our war. Let's pray. Thank you. Jesus, for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for winning victory over the grave so that we need not fear. Thank you, Jesus, for the spoils of war that you lavish upon us, faith and intimacy, purpose, power and peace. And Father, may we not leave here saying, huh, that's just great, or oh, that was interesting, but may we leave here transformed, transformed by the good news of Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.